Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, and it's my job to help you to put the pieces of the product puzzle together. I do that by unpacking the stories, learnings, and expert advice of world-class UX design and product management professionals. My guest today is Jared Spool. Jared is co-CEO and maker of awesomeness, and yes, that is his real job title, at Center Center, the user experience design school that he co-founded in 2012. At Center Center, Jared is helping to create the next generation of industry-ready user experience designers through a one-of-a-kind, built-from-scratch two-year curriculum. Winding back the clock a bit, in 1988, Jared founded User Interface Engineering, often referred to as UIE, a UX consultancy that for nearly 28 years conducted primary research on how to create great user experiences through delightful products and services. In 2011, Jared received the internationally recognized Stevens Award because of his quiet evangelism of usability and his wide-ranging influence on how the software industry thought about making systems effective. Speaking at over 20 conferences a year, Jared has delivered keynote presentations for events like South by Southwest Interactive, the Usability Professionals Association, and an event apart. He was also the founder of the annual User Interface Conference, which ran for 22 years from 1996 until 2018. Jared is a regular blogger, media commentator, and the author of the formative book, Website Usability, A Designer's Guide, which challenged many commonly held assumptions about design when it was published in 1998. He is also the co-author of Web Anatomy, Interaction Design Frameworks That Work, and User-Centered Website Development, A Human-Computer Interaction Approach. Often referred to as the most effective, knowledgeable communicator on the subject of UX today, I'd say we're in for a great conversation. So, without further delay, internet sensation and teen heartthrob, Jared Spool, welcome to the show. Wow, I didn't know all that. Well, it's all true, <laughs> apparently. So, <laughs> and you did all of uh-huh. it. So. You learned something. I, I've always wondered what I won the Stevens Award for. They never told me. <laughs> well, I, I pulled that one from your Wikipedia bio, and that oh. was verbatim. So I'm, I'm assuming that that was the reason why. So, Jared, it's great having you here. You've obviously got an immaculate career in UX. You know, one of the the leading thinkers on the subject. And I always like to start these conversations on a serious note. And I understand that something about you that not maybe many people know is that you're an amateur magician. Is this true? Um, yes, but I want to I want to point out to your to your viewers that um, the difference between an amateur magician and a professional magician is that a professional magician has gotten paid <laughs> and so so I, I i am you know not that good a magician anyone can be an amateur magician if they don't get paid <laughs> well this is true maybe you're above you're above getting paid it puts it in another league. yeah my son my son was a professional or is a professional magician he's still my son and he's still a professional magician <laughs> and um at least for now and he uh, uh, he he learned how to be a professional magician when he was a teenager. So 
Uh, he was actually too young to go to professional magician conferences by himself. So I would chaperone him and I would get to go to workshops and seminars and things. And I picked up a, a couple of, of tricks which, and illusions which you can do if you pay somebody for them and um, uh, can perform them adequately enough to not get paid for it. <laughs> have you have you got any that are suitable for pre-recorded podcasts uh, <laughs> here we go ladies and gentlemen jared spool round yeah, of applause no, yeah this is one uh, this is what i perform for six-year-olds I, I can just you know take this and it goes away oh, but of course i didn't do it on camera let me try it again so there we go <laughs> magic look at that jared spool excellent i love it that's the first time that we've had a live magic trick on brave ux that's wonderful uh in the profession they call them illusions and they're not tricks they're illusions yes illusions. tricks are something illusions. that another profession does oh, i'm gonna have to fire, i'm gonna have to fire my researcher for that which in this case is myself so maybe we should move on I'm interested to know. You mentioned your son was uh, is a professional mm -hmm. magician. Yeah, he's gotten paid. And he, when, yeah, he's gotten paid. Was that the way in which you got introduced to magic, or did you introduce him to magic? I introduced him to magic, um, uh, but not because I knew anything about it. Um, the the I was traveling a lot for work, going to various client gigs, and I would go city city, and he was. Uh, he was in his in his very early teens, and uh, I would, I, when I was traveling, I would bring him some sort of gift, mostly to buy him off for the fact that I was away during important time, and uh, he would, uh, and and in one city, I think Seattle, it was Seattle. No, it was it was it was Vegas. I was in Vegas. And the hotel I was staying in had a magic uh, shop. So I, I uh, went to the, the magic shop. I was in New York, New York, the, the Vegas hotel. And I went to the magic shop there. Mm -hmm. And I said, what do you have for like a 12-year-old who, who has never really tried anything? And they sold me an expensive thing. And uh, uh, I brought it home. And he loved it. And then he lost it. And, and uh, uh, my next trip, I went and got him another not as expensive thing. And uh, uh, mm -hmm. uh, this time in Seattle and, and he loved that. And, and, we, and so I would just bring him home various things from the magic stores because it was like a win uh, gift. It, that was something he appreciated. And then, and then I was looking, I was going on a trip and I was looking up where there were magic stores on my next trip and realized that there was one here in Boston. I had never known that there was one here in Boston. So we, uh, it was about 25 minutes away. So we, we, one Saturday we hopped in the car and we went and looked at the magic store there. And he was just completely, um, uh, enthralled by it. And, uh, mm. behind the counter was a 16 year old and the 16 year old, uh, uh, showed him some illusions and 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 stuff that they had and the expensive ones and and i ended up buying one and but uh and then said <laughs> by the way every uh the first friday of of every month uh we have this group that meets here that are all kids 
who are becoming professional magicians. So if you want to come, you can come to that. And that's when my son mm. was hooked. And we started going, and, mm. and he eventually became the president of the, it's part of the American Society of Magicians, and um, mm. uh, the Youth Magician, uh, Society of Youth Magicians, it's called, SYM. And he was, uh, he became the president of the chapter at one, when he was 18, and um, uh, went to magic camp for several years. And in fact, if you, there's a movie called Magic Camp hmm. uh, that's a documentary about the camp that he went to and he stars in it He's uh, they follow <laughs> four kids through their summer uh, at Magic Camp and he's one of the kids and you started it all and now he has yeah, a I started it by spending a money, magician which is basically yeah. <laughs> how I started him I mean that's just how you know mm. when you have kids that's that's basically you just you you start the engine by putting money into it <laughs> well, it, so it sounds like he's gotten a lot of a value out of that investment that you put into him. Well, okay. So, so the other thing to clarify is being a professional magician for most professional magicians is sort of like being a professional comedian in that you have to have a day job. So he's a very successful software right. engineer. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Which no doubt it was, seems like that might've been influenced by, by yourself as well. So. Uh, a little, yeah. uh, his his mother was a very talented software engineer. I think she 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 had right. a lot to do with that. He's in good good parental hands. Then it sounds yeah. like. So something else, Jared, that I noticed when I was having a little look uh, at the things that you've been up to, you're, and you're like it was something I was unclear about. Well, hopefully yeah. not too much of a stalker, but it's all publicly yeah. available. But I had to. I sort of got this uh, bit of confusion about this. The details weren't quite clear. It was either that you were responsible for the six keys above the arrow keys on modern keyboards yeah. or the design and location of the arrow keys themselves. Which one of those is true, if either? Um, I designed the six keys above the arrow keys, uh, but I was on the team that worked on the arrow keys. So... So, mm. so I, I sat in on them. Uh, yeah, the, the, the common keyboard that we have is all a, um, based on a keyboard that was created uh, by a company that doesn't exist anymore, Digital Equipment Corporation. Uh, it was the mm. LK201 keyboard. So if you Google that, you'll see it. And that's the keyboard I worked on. It was part of the... Mm. Uh, a, fa a series of failed personal computers that digital equipment created, which is one of the reasons why they don't exist anymore. And does the, that keyboard live on? Uh, so uh, I was walking. So, so um, I, I, I ended up in, in 2015, I ended up working for a year in the Obama White House. And... Mm. Uh, one of my colleagues was a, the the chief information architecture, our, uh, chief information officer for uh, mm -hmm. the National Archives in Washington D.C., and he arranged for us to go on a behind-the-scenes tour of the National Archives while I was there. And uh, in the tour. They have this exhibit, or they had this exhibit on computer technology, and featured in that exhibit was the computer and the keyboard that I helped design. 
Hmm. Well, that must have felt pretty it good. It was pretty awesome to, to say that, you know, my work mm-hmm. was in the National Archives. Now, I have something to ask you, and it's how do you feel about what Apple did here uh, with this keyboard? a lovely keyboard. It doesn't have those six <laughs> keys. It's... No, it doesn't, does it? No, 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 no. Uh, 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 the six keys are sort of anachronistic. They were they were designed in 1982 before we had mice. So mm. um, they were designed in a character world. You know, when when screens didn't have graphics but were only characters, and you used the arrow keys to navigate, and you needed to signal that uh, you wanted to delete something or insert something. Uh, into the text uh, or you wanted to move more than just a line up or a line down so page up and page down became interesting and going to the mm. beginning and the end so we designed these keys when when you did everything on a keyboard and I mean there was no notion of keyboard shortcuts because that was the only way you could manipulate anything and so mm. um, uh, so they, they they served a purpose then they don't serve serve that purpose now. Uh, there were a couple other keys on that mm. keyboard that did not make it into other keyboards. There was a help key. So instead of using F1 mm-hmm. for help, there was a big wide key that was above the six keys that was labeled help. And then there was another key called the do key. And the do key was supposed to be a, a, a command completion key. So you weren't using return. The idea was that return would literally be a line return it would it would bring you back to the beginning of the line so all these text type in boxes where you accidentally hit return and it like sends your message and what you really wanted was to keep typing but just put in a paragraph break we were trying to solve that problem by having this separate key that you would always use to send the message the do key And the Mm. return key would always behave exactly the same way. It would just go to a new line and let you type another line of text. But that that um, that went by the wayside uh, in the evolution of PCs. And so now we accidentally send messages to people. (laughs) I know. And then when you have to unsend them, it tells them that you've unsent it and then it creates even more. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, unsending something is in a communications world is is an odd structure, right? This, this idea that you can send a message and then unsend it. It's, you know, it's like you let the smoke out of the fire, but you can recall it. Let's shift gears, Jared, and have a chat about something that I know that you're quite professionally passionate about. And it's something that you've spoke extensively on, puppies. which is how to build puppies. Well, we could talk about puppies. I was thinking more about the design capability of organizations and how we oh, yeah, might that enhance that. <laughs> <laughs> what is the uh, UX tipping point and how do we help companies to get there? Uh, the UX tipping point is that is that moment in an organization when um, uh, the user experience is seen as important, if not more important, than whether something technically works and whether it meets the business requirements. So mm-hmm. uh, it's this it's it's this idea, right? In a lot of organizations, if if something doesn't technically work, they won't ship it. But if it technically works, mm-hmm. but it doesn't meet the business requirements, they still won't ship it. But if it technically works and it meets the business requirements but it's not designed 
well or even close to well, uh, they'll ship it anyways. And they'll just say, well, we'll fix it in the next release, which for many years, I think, <laughs> was Microsoft's tagline. And um, <laughs> the uh, but the UX tipping point is when an organization finally says, no, 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 we're not going to we're not going to ship something that that isn't well designed. That's 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 against our brand. That's against what we stand for. That's against everything we do. So we're only going to ship things that are well designed. And, and that's the tipping point. Right. When when we get the organization mm -hmm. to move that point, then then that changes the game across the board because we no longer have to fight for who we are and what we do. We, we are now in this place where we um, are capable of, of uh, making sure. Now to get to that moment, we have to do a damn good mm -hmm. job because the company doesn't like not shipping something. So we have <laughs> to be it has to be a rare occasion that that happens. And we have to have our, our uh, as, as we in America say, we have to have our ducks in a row, which I don't understand because because if you see ducks, they walk in in a line in a column, not not in a row. A row would be this this, you know, head on duck brigade that would just be scary. And clearly they didn't know about spreadsheets, whoever came up with that. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It, it doesn't make so, any sense to me. I don't understand why we talk about ducks in a row, though I just did talk about ducks in a row. Well, if we can suspend our disbelief about the, the poor structure of, of that saying for a moment, how do we get our ducks in a row if they're not in a row already? I, I think you just you you pick them up and you wind them up. <laughs> I see how this conversation is going to be. Um, <laughs> it's a lot of work. It, it, it's it's you know it's a big, hairy, audacious goal to to mm. to get to this idea that the organization understands it. We have to we have to refine our techniques. We have to up our skills. We have to get the people we work with to be more skilled. We have to be able to um, make sure they understand why we do what we do. Um, hmm. uh, it's not impossible, but, but, you know, in many cases you have to change the hiring practices in the organization. You have to change, uh, a lot of elements about the culture. So there, there it's, hmm. it's, you know, we're talking years. Hmm. Yeah. And I know that you, you have a maturity model that you're, you're quite fond of. And I also remember listening to a talk you gave in 2019 at CSS Day. And I just want to quote you now because I believe it's relevant to what we've just been talking about. You should be you sitting said, over here. You know more about this stuff than I do. Well, you know, I'm always happy to come on over when I'm vaccinated. <laughs> I'll, I'll jump on over and we'll have this conversation in person. I should person. be interviewing you. You said... <laughs> <laughs> I've got the easy job. You've got your content out there. I just, uh, yeah, I just, you just research keep telling me what I've done. It's just amazing. I'm, I'm, I'm getting pretty <laughs> impressed here. I, I... Well, well, I know this isn't a misquote because I did actually listen to you say it. You said our job as design leaders is to get people to level up, to get the entire team, particularly the least mature influencer, 
if we can get them to be fluent, we can do many, many more things. So my question is, how do you help people to achieve that fluency, to achieve higher levels of capability as a designer in an organization where that doesn't necessarily exist without coming across like a know-it-all asshole? Um, well, they're not mutually exclusive. You, you can do both. Um, you you can mm. get them more mature and come across as a know-it-all asshole. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, it's probably ideal to... to to avoid the, the asshole thing. Part of what we do as leaders is, is help those around us understand why we're doing what we're doing, right? This is, this is true of pretty much any type of leadership. I mean, if, if you're running a, a restaurant and you want to, to raise up the quality of the food, you have to, you, you can berate people into into trying to do that, but that's not going to get you there because if they don't know how to do it now, they're not going to just do it. So you have to model the behavior. Mm -hmm. You have to show how it works. You then have to, to go through and diligently remove any sort of friction or obstacles that are happening. And you, over time, and, and part of it is you have to hire the right people. You have to, to find mm -hmm. folks who are who are capable of growing their capabilities. And, and this is key. I mean, in most organizations today, so much of design work, so much of UX work is basically compensating for the fact that the people we work with have virtually no skills or knowledge in this area. And that's our fault. Right. I mean, it, it's it's we let that happen and, and we don't do much to, to fix it. But it, it's actually quite important if we start to piece by piece uh, uh, get people to realize why we do what we do and to give them basic skills to be able to do some of it. And they don't need to be the world's best designer. But, you know, ch chances are we're not the world's best designer. And um, mm. uh, and so we just need them to be able to do the work. So if we understand what the work is and we understand what's necessary to get the work done, we can piece by piece grow it out and, and, and people will learn it and they'll pick it up. And, and if, you know, if hmm. we focus directly on the, um, the way that uh, the work is done over time, uh, the people around us get better at things. You know, mm. once you get there, you, you it takes less work to, for instance, show them something that's a better design than what they came up with themselves. And then if you can help them get to that better design on their own by just, you know, piecemeal by piecemeal, showing them what you did to get there, they can start to get there mm -hmm. some of the time and then they start to get there more of the time and then they start to get there all the time. And then if they're getting there all the time, there's that big list of things that we never get to because we spend our time drawing wireframes in 20 different states because we can't trust the developers to code them up right. <laughs> uh, um, uh, we don't have to do that anymore. That frees us up and we can go work mm. on that big list of things that nobody's getting to. Like, you know, what is it the users really need and what what is it that will make us uh, competitive in the marketplace and what is it that will be truly mm. innovative? And that 
once we get to that moment, everything changes. Mm. And this is the tipping point that you were speaking of right. before. You know, getting to that point, I've also heard you talk about design processes often a lot of emphasis placed on design process, how we do design to try and help increase that capability within organizations. And I, 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 I get that. I understand why as designers we want to have some process and some structure and some formality to that. But you said, and I'm going to quote you now, design processes don't work because they can't possibly operate the same every time because there are too many conditions that can happen. So if design process isn't the silver bullet to build design capability in, organi in an organization, what are some more effective or what is a more effective way of increasing that capability in an organization that is at that very basic level of maturity? Yeah. If you need to hire a plumber, you don't ask the plumber, what's your process? Yeah, I'm not sure what a plumber would say. Well, we used to work in a waterfall method, but now uh, uh, we, we use an object-oriented approach where we just treat the, every drip as its own object and we just send it a message that says fix itself. Uh, um, there's there's uh, the, the, the idea that we as... Um, uh, we as as designers um, are arrogant enough to suggest that we always do everything the same way uh, is ridiculous. We don't do things the same way. Every every project needs to be, needs to be situationally aware, and we don't do two projects in a row the same way because there are different things that need to be done. There are different people involved. There's different contexts that the project lives in. And it, it's it's you know you look at a a, a football field and um, a football pitch and 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 when the teams run into the football pit, pitch they don't they don't come with this giant Gantt chart that that has every player in a swim line and and the coach doesn't say Harold at two minutes and twenty four seconds I need you to score because that's when you scored in the last game and that would be perfect in this game, right? <laughs> we don't have this all planned out, and this idea that we somehow have a process that that implies that there's one way to do this, and the thing that amuses me the most is when we ask uh, uh, job candidates what their process is as if we're going to let them use it, right? Because if their process is the same as ours, well, that's great. If it's different than ours, are we just not going to give them the job because they have the wrong process, or are we going to tell them to use our process? At which point, why do we care mm -hmm. what their process is? Uh, what... What itch are we trying to scratch with that question? You know, what is it that we're trying to get from, from a question like that? I, I, it's, it's a stupid question. I mean, it, it, it's, it's a question that people ask when they don't know how to, how to actually assess somebody's skills. Hmm. Uh, because it's, it's a question that, that um, uh, doesn't actually tell you. Now, if you said to a candidate, uh, walk me through the activities and 
the challenges from your last project, out of that would emerge a process, right? You'd see whether they tr they did any research, you'd see whether they uh, iterated, you'd see whether they, they had multiple ideas and then refined them down to one, or if they just took the first idea that came from them and ran with it. And that's mm -hmm. all fine. But if you ask them to describe another project that they're proud of, you'll get a different process. Patterns will emerge if we keep that up, and that will tell us something about the candidate. And we can ask the question, mm -hmm. how come none of these projects inv involve research? How come none of these projects consider multiple versions? And we can find out where they're mm -hmm. at with that. But to have them tell us their process is a, is a waste of energy. And so the process is the wrong way to deal with it. And that's not that's not how the footballers do it. The way the footballers do mm. it is they run into the field. Well, you're you're from, you know, Australia. You have you have you know, Aussie rules where, you know, they run to field with very tight shorts. Uh, my wife very much enjoyed uh, Aussie rules football. Anyway, <laughs> we saw it in the cricket grounds in Melbourne, and uh, mm -hmm. um, uh, we had absolutely no idea. So we're sitting up in the nosebleed section of the cricket gowns, looking at this game. It was with uh, uh, Hollywood? Hollywood, Collingwood. But anyways, uh, uh, we're sitting there trying to reverse engineer this this uh, this game, and it's pretty hmm. clear that the the players come onto the field and they're not they're not coming with a plan as to exactly how they're going to play this. They're they're constantly evaluating the situation and then adapting that and falling into these different templates and plays that they're using to 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 pull off their win. And hmm. it's um, uh, it's it's that process of of looking at the situation and saying, what's the right next thing to do? And knowing what the mm. capabilities and tools are and knowing where you're trying to get and, and adapting to the situation that gets us our success. So we, we don't want one path that is the path we always use. We want to be adaptive to our situation and be able to to handle stuff. You know, do we are we working with people who understand what we're trying to do? Are we working with people who understands sort of what we're trying to do? Are we, do we are we working with people who've never we've never worked with before and we don't know what they know, right? In each of those situations, we're going to change things up. You know, are we mm. are we in a place where the eyes of the organization are on us because this is the most important project and and the moment you signal that things aren't going well, everyone's going to be hovering. Or are we working? Uh, in obscurity because the rest of the organization has no clue what we work on and we can pretty much uh, get away with anything right now. And, and mm. you know, we have to change how we work based on these things. And none of those things are ever talked about in design school. None of those things are talked about amongst designers in terms of, of how do you handle these situations. But these are the, these are the things that determine what we do next. Not some sort of notion of, well, we always start with personas. <laughs> mm. And just building on this analogy that you've given with the sports team and when they run out there onto the pitch, they have these plays in mind 
but they're not pre-scripted as an Gantt chart, so they emerge based on what's in front of them. Thinking about the prep that those sports teams put in before they get out there, they spend a lot of time reviewing footage of their previous games and also footage of the other team. So they get a sense of what they're in for and they can think about how they might respond if they encounter a similar situation. Yeah, we have a name for now, all I know that. One of we the... call it research. Yeah, and in particular, I know, I know you're quite um, in favor, at least you've spoken about a play called Immersive Exposure. What is Immersive Exposure and why is that so critical to building design capability? Uh, immersive Exposure is fairly simple. It's it's the amount of time that, that everybody who is making and influencing decisions about what the user experience will be like spends with users actually hmm. watching them do the things they're trying to do with our product or service right? if we're if we're going to build something for doctors to use how much time do we spend actually watching doctors doctor and hmm. um if we don't spend any time we're just guessing what a doctor needs <laughs> right or we have some subject matter expert who might have been a doctor once and they're just relying what they needed once but not helping us with any variations on that because we're just going to assume that all doctors are identical to one who worked five years ago and so mm. um immersive exposure is is we actually spend significant amount of time with our users actually seeing what they do and eventually seeing what they do with our product and looking for opportunities to to change that up and to see if if we change the product do they do different things and you know making decisions about what are the behaviors that we want to see and how will we know when we've gotten the behaviors we want and what do you say to the people that look at that type of research that immersive exposure whether it's usability testing or contextual inquiry and and they say how do we quantify the impact of that time and investment that we're spending you know how do we how do we know for certain that all this effort is going to result in some sort of return on investment back into the business and to the product that we're trying to deliver to customers? One of the things that, that we should talk more about in our field is the fact that when we let poor design out the door, it costs the organization money. Um, mm. It costs the organization money having demand support calls. It costs the organization money having to throw in training with the product. It costs the organization money to build capabilities that nobody ends up using or to have the developers redo those capabilities multiple times. It costs the organization money when they lose sales to a competitor who figured out how to deliver the same capabilities and in some cases less capability, but with a much better to you easier to use interface. Um, mm. uh, all those things cost the organization money. So it's, it's the return on investment isn't about the money that 
uh, the new investment we'd have to make to do this work. It's about taking investment that we're already making in poor design and redirecting it to better design. Mm. And so we're just shifting funds around. The funds are already being spent. And chances are mm. they're being spent on things that are uh, ongoing accumulations of expenses, right? Support isn't a one-time cost. It's an ongoing cost. Training isn't a one-time cost. It's an ongoing cost. Lost sales are ongoing opportunity losses. So, so mm. uh, those costs will continue if we do nothing. It's only if we do something that they stop. So this is really a no-brainer. Mm. So it sounds like you're advocating for a shift in the conversation towards design as helping to reduce drag on the organization so that the organization can deliver better value more quickly with less cost to support. Well, that's the that's the entryway, right? That's how you that's mm. how you deal with the conversation of this seems like a lot of work that's really expensive. What are we going to do? It's like, yes, it is, uh, but it's actually more expensive to do what we keep doing. And not only is it more expensive mm -hmm. to do what we keep doing, but if you're suggesting that putting out a better quality product is not worth doing because it's too expensive, then I have all sorts of ways we can cut costs. We can fire the QA department because they're just a cost that's very expensive and and we obviously have decided that quality is not that important and uh we could hire <laughs> less talented developers they're very expensive let's get people who are half the price who have half the capability um we could probably get something shipped really fast that doesn't work and save a ton of money and mm -hmm. so you know once we decide that that well some quality is worth it where do we draw that line and mm. if the whole measure of quality is it has to be good enough for the customer have we really figured out what that definition of good enough for the customer is particularly in a competitive landscape where someone else can make that customer happy by just copying the capabilities that we innovated but do, doing it in a package that's easier to use. So let's pick up on that thread then. So you know, with a lot of technology emerging in the last couple of decades and also new business models forming around how to deploy that technology, a lot of industries have been disrupted, a lot of well-established businesses have been disrupted, they've been exposed to competition that they never saw coming. And it seems to me at least that a lot of that has been just the new competitor meeting the basic expectations like you've just spoken about in a better way than the incumbent. Oh, yeah. What can, yeah, what can organizations that are incumbents, so, you know, I'm thinking about organizations and industries that are slow to respond because they're regulated or they have higher risks. So this could be banking, it could be insurance, you know, those sort of tried and true been around forever industries, how can they do a better job of getting their shit together, so to speak, to respond more effectively to these competitive threats? So one of the things I learned not too long ago was that the regulations that banking is under 
are written by banks, <laughs> right? They they produce a set of regulations. They produce these the you know the lobbyists for the banks, which are made up of banks, uh, um, uh, actually supply the regulations to government because government itself doesn't have the expertise to um, to 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 meet these things. So so, and it turns out that that most regulations actually allow for more competitive behavior, uh, particularly around user experience. There's nothing I have yet to see a regulation that says you must have a worst user experience. Now, to be fair, there are regulations that say things like you have to make sure that your customers understand there is risk. But what the bank does is it translates that regulation into um, a uh, into a, a, a policy, an internal banking policy that says we're going to pop up this ugly terms and conditions dialogue box at the top of every screen uh, to, to make sure that you press a button that says you've read it, whether you've read it or not, we're not going to double check it. But if you say you've read it, that's good enough for us. And therefore, you acknowledge that there's risk. And so if something goes wrong, mm -hmm. you can't come after us and you can't complain to the government that we somehow let you take a risk. And... Um, those policies are poor user experiences, but they are not the policies that are mandated by regulation. Those are an implementation. There are other ways that we can do that. So, you know, every website, because of uh, uh, a law known as GDPR, almost every website mm -hmm. in the world now pops up this ugly little box that says, do you accept cookies? And of course, people press this box without knowing what this means. If you go to The Guardian, the uh, British newspaper, um, mm -hmm. they, uh, uh, they pop up a different box. They pop up a box that says, please don't sell my uh, personal information. And that, for those users who care about those things, is actually a much better user experience. Hmm. They would much rather be able to just say, yeah, don't, just don't let me do this. Um, Apple has gone a step farther and has made the default in their new operating system for the phones to not share personal information. You have to turn it on, not opt out. And all of those are UX changes. Absolutely none of them are specified in GDPR or any of the equivalent laws. Right? All of those allow for a better user experience. And so the, the, uh, this is that case where people are paying attention to what the business needs. It has to be in compliance. And they're paying attention to whether it technically works. But they're not paying attention to the design. And they don't realize that that design is slowly but surely, surely eroding the health 
of the relationship they have with their customers and their users. And the moment that someone comes up with an alternative and basically defaults the other way and says, you know what, we're just never going to sell your information. You can trust us on that. We're just going to say that point blank. There's nothing in our system. We will repeat it, but you don't have to click on anything because we're just not going to do it because it's not worth it to us to piss you mm -hmm. off that way. How many people will they get just for that purpose? How many people will say, you know what, if they're going to if they're going to do that and none of their competitors will, I will I will spend my attention with them. I will spend my money with them. Mm. And so so this argument that that, you know, we're in a regulated community and therefore we have to have an awful user experience. I, I, that's complete crap. That's just laziness. <clears throat> and there's yeah, there's a bit of that that I that I see that does exist, but I also see that there is quite a strong willingness to change, but often the people that are in the large organizations that are a bit more risk averse, they're struggling with the the machinery of the bureaucracy that, that seems to get in the way. Sure. What are some sure. of the... But, you know, I worked in the federal government. We were able to do things in the federal government. We had a... We had a... Um, we had a, a, a something we trained all the new people who joined the program the i was in the u.s digital service and and everybody we mm. trained we taught them a couple of things and one of the things we taught them was to ask the question when somebody said well that's the way we have to do it uh, uh to ask the question can you show me the law or the regulation that says that we have to do it exactly this way because i'd like to read that mm. And this wasn't a mean or passive aggressive sentence. This was this was no literally. I would like to read the rules. If we if if you know if I'm going to coach a football team, I need to read the rule book. Right? I need to understand what we're allowed to do, what we're not allowed to do. And it's my job mm. as coach to get us right up to that line of what we're allowed to do and not cross into the what we're not allowed to do, but to use the entire landscape in the what we are allowed to do space to its fullest. That's my responsibility to the team. So so we would teach folks that they need to 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 learn that. And you'd be surprised how often the people who say, well, that's the way we have to do it, because that's it'd be, well, that's the way we've always done it. But it's not because that's the way it has to be done. And a lot of these things has to do with the fact that those poor people on the regulatory side, the compliance people, are completely overworked. Mm -hmm. And so what they like to do when they're overworked is they like to find a solution that they know will get through the system. We've gotten it through. We've gotten it through a dozen times. If they flag us this time, we'll say, but what about the other dozen times you let us go? Right. And we know it works. So we have precedence. And that's often what they're basing things on is, well, this path always works. It's, you know, from their perspective, they're walking through a minefield and this is the path that never explodes. And if we take any other path, it might be safe, but it could explode. And I'm busy and I'm overworked and I don't have time to deal with your explosion. So we're just going to take the path that, that always works. And that's where they're at. So then we need to, to 
to find out why are they overworked? Why, why do they not have the resources they need? And this becomes a UX problem that mm. the compliance people don't have the resources they need to actually allow us to explore the other paths through the minefield and to do it safely. And that's, that's the, the, the trick. Once you have that realization mm. that you need to help them get more resources so that you can have the freedom to explore the other paths, everything opens up. You also need tools to be able to navigate the minefield. You need mine detectors, all sorts of things. But, but we, can, we can get those things. And why was President Barack Obama so interested in developing the digital service and having government improve user experience? Because I understand you were working, I think it was the office of the president. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was in the executive a, office of the president. Quite a senior level. Yeah, my boss's boss yeah. was, was, was Barry. Mm. <laughs> That's what we called him. Not to his face. You called him, to you called him president, <laughs> Mr. President to his face. <laughs> yeah, Barry, if you're listening to this, I do apologize. <laughs> That's, but why That's what Michelle was him. President... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> well, I'm. Yeah, I think I think we're probably not on. Uh, I'm not on the, the, that much of a familiar term with him. But why was President Obama so keen on getting user experience right in the public service? Uh, because he completely screwed it up. <laughs> uh, there, there was a, there was a. Uh, so here in the United States, uh, one of our more uncivilized practices other than you know allowing everyone to have guns and kill each other uh, is uh, to not give people proper health care uh, the people who who wear pro-life badges are against giving people health care I, I don't understand how that works but that's uh, um, that's that's how it tends to play out and that's the night um, that's the nature of hypocrisy though isn't it Yes, 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 yes. So, so we ha we have a, a a strong American culture of hypocrisy. Uh, so we don't have uh, single payer health care where you know everybody gets the same plan no matter whether they're working or not. All your health care comes through an employer, and this is completely unfair to people who don't have employment. And so, uh, in a in an attempt to get both sides to agree on something we managed to pass a law that became uh, known as Obamacare, but in fact was based on a, there, there's a Republican called Mitt Romney, who was the governor of Massachusetts, and he was the one who came up with it. So it was originally a Republican plan, uh, but the Democrats got it through federal government. And uh, part of Obamacare was this website where you would sign up and all the health insurance businesses would basically create this marketplace. So think eBay for health insurance. And the idea was you would go and you'd look at plans and you'd pick the one that was best for you. And the first day it opened up, the website just crushed itself under its own weight. <laughs> to create a new account, uh, once you entered all your information and you pressed create my account, it took eight minutes to come back and say, okay, your account was created. And of course, people thought it had crashed, so they started over and it just made it worse. And, and 
and so it was a complete disaster in its first launch. Mm. And the president, uh, with the help of his chief uh, technical officer, went off and, and found a, um, uh, a small team of about 13 or so tech people to come in and basically redesign the whole thing from start to finish. And they did it in six weeks. The previous thing took a year. It involved 300 different uh, government contractors, probably a thousand people, cost millions of dollars to build. And this team of 13 people just built it from the ground up. And of course, none of the 300 organizations worked with each other to build it. So mm -hmm. when they first turned it on, it just didn't work. And so um, uh, uh, the the. Uh, this team built it, rebuilt it, got it running in six weeks, got it. And, you know, within the first two weeks, it had signed 10 million people up or something crazy like that. And so uh, so so the minute he saw that that was capable, that 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 could be done, he's like, I want that. I, I, we should have that because uh, another part of government that has to do with our um, elected representatives uh, has a division called the Government Oversight Office, uh, um, a Government Accounting Office, Government Accounting Office. And the Government Accounting Office every year publishes a report of the top 30 tech projects that are likely to fail this year. Mm -hmm. And they measure a top by how much money has been spent so far. And so these are tech projects that are often in the hundreds of millions of dollars that are on the verge of failure for the same reasons that healthcare.gov was. And he's like, I need a team of people who just basically go from project to project and just help them get back on track. And so that's what we were hired to do. And so, so our job was to create a better citizen experience. Yeah, and you've highlighted in, in that example with healthcare.gov, what you were talking about earlier, which was that quite real cost of getting design wrong. And in that case, it sounded like it was a horrendously high price, both for a political price to be paid, but also um, for the citizens, it was a high cost to endure not being able right. to get through that application process and register yourself for Obamacare. Yeah, exactly. Mm. It, was, it was it was expensive all around. Mm. And, and, and this was an opportunity to uh, to to uh to do to fix that mm. and and the digital service is still there uh the team is doing fantastic work i was just there for a year um uh they're doing fantastic work they they uh have become a sort of model of how uh tech can work in government mm. and um are being emulated all over the world, including Australia, which has a fantastic digital service. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Jared, let's shift gears and talk about something that we touched on earlier, which was the work that you've been doing at Center Center, creating the next generation of user experience designers. You spoke briefly about hiring practices and you know better questions that can be asked and the ways in which we can better understand the talent that we're looking to assess to join our organizations. What does an industry-ready UX graduate look like, a great one, and what are the ways in which industry 
can assess whether the people they're looking at are great talent to hire? Yeah, so so we we set ourselves a a, a simple to say but not simple to do goal, which is when someone graduates from our program, it's a two-year program, and when they graduate from our program, they and they get their first job, they are ready to do production quality work on the very first day. Mm-hmm. And we got there because we did a tremendous amount of research with hiring managers, asking them about hiring folks, in particular hiring folks right out of school programs. And what we found was that the hiring managers kept telling us that the thing that frustrated the most was that these folks went through all this program and then they show up and they 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 aren't trained. They can't work. They don't know how to do the things. And it was because the the skills that the schools were teaching were sort of textbook theory, mm-hmm. but not actual work. And they didn't have the flexibility to adapt to uh, a different way of approaching a similar problem. And so we started uh, looking at, well, what would it take to get someone who on their first day of work actually could do the job? And that's where we came up with this idea of industry ready. And we started to to look and say, okay, what do you need these people to accomplish in their first year? Mm-hmm. And what, what are you willing to train them on? Because there are some things they're going to have to train them on, right? They're going to have to train them uh, on uh, some specifics of the product or what the what the actual need is, uh, maybe who the users are. Mm-hmm. They're going to need to train them on how the organization works. But should they be training them on basic craft? Should they be training them on using the uh, uh, tools? Should they be training them on on uh, being able to adapt to situations? So, So we we focused our program on teaching folks how to assess the environment they just ended up in and look at the situation around them and say, okay, I know what to do next. Mm-hmm. I know how to navigate this. You know, you want me to do user research. I know what questions to ask and I know how to do this. And we did it by basically taking a program where two thirds of the time for that two year period. So we have 96 weeks. So, basically 67 weeks out of the um, out of the two years, the students are in essence doing project work. Mm. They are working on specific projects uh, and they work on multiple projects. So they'll work with, and, and these are real company supplied projects. They're not little toy things we made up. Mm-hmm. They are a project that if the students do a good job will get put into production and the uh, so there's all there's the finishing details there's the research there's uh, understanding how to how to spin up a project understanding how to wrap it up and mm-hmm. get all the details done these are all things that not only do we teach them but they practice 
multiple times throughout the their two years. They they do six ten week projects, and that gives them a fair amount of experience of variations on themes because across those six projects user research won't be done the same way twice mm. yeah, across those six projects the deliverables won't be the same deliverables twice across those six projects the students won't uh, have the same configuration of team uh, so so they'll have to adapt to new team members and how those team members interact together mm. and so it's it's those types of things that that help us uh, understand how to make sure that they have all the skills necessary to be able to do the projects, which then gets them the skills necessary to take on the new jobs. Mm. I mean, those projects, no doubt, will be hugely valuable. And I also understand that there is a daily practice that you have with the students, and it won't be unfamiliar to a lot of us uh, in design, which is the daily stand-up. But I understand that other than asking the basic stand-up questions that we would all know, you know, what did you, what did you do yesterday? What are you focused on today? Have you got anything that you need a hand with to remove an obstacle uh, from your way? You ask another question, a magic question. What is that other question that you have your students answer at your daily stand-ups? Uh, we ask them, uh, what have you learned since the last stand-up? And uh, what's the most important thing you've learned? And how will that change the way you, you behave in the future? Why is that so and important? Uh, well, it creates this, this um, uh, culture of continuous learning, mm. right? It, it, it sends this message that we as an organization are not about you showing up and being, you know, using your superpowers and then leaving, uh, we are we are we are there for you to to actually keep learning. You need to you need to learn and then keep learning. And when when and the thing is that everybody participates in the stand up. So so I participate in it. And my co-founder uh, Leslie Jensen Inman uh, uh, participates. And when the people who run the program are saying something that they didn't know the day before that they just learned and, and sharing that. Uh, that uh, sends this message that everybody can constantly be learning. Mm -hmm. And that, that we don't have to be ashamed of not knowing something. So much of the time, we have it sort of beaten into our head that, that if we look like we don't know what we're doing, they're going to fire us. They're going to get rid of us. They're going to, they're not going to respect us. Mm -hmm. But having a culture of continuous learning means that every day you have to come to the table with something that, uh, you didn't know before. So by definition, yesterday, you didn't know this. You didn't know what you were doing. You didn't know why you were doing it. You, you, you learned that in the last 24 hours, mm -hmm. some aspect of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And, when you do that every day it it and you celebrate what people are learning more than what people already knew how to do mm. it changes the way people approach new things mm. i think this is a huge point and culture changes in small ways in such a small 
but important practice like asking those questions every day is one way in which organisations can change their culture to, to be more receptive to learning and for their people to be right. less fearful of getting things wrong. You know, our traditional education system is really set up not to encourage us to be seen to be wrong and I think that leads to a lot of wasted talent and a lot of wasted time and effort. It's exactly right. When we set up the school, mm. there are no tests. Mm. You never take a test, right? In order to pass, you have to demonstrate that you can do something. Mm. There, there's a list of, of things that you have to do uh, we call them competencies. And you have to demonstrate that you did it. Mm. We don't care how long it takes you to, to, to learn how to do it. Yeah. You just have to learn how to do it. Mm. And so you can try it on your first try or you can do it on your hundredth try. As soon as you do it, you do it. Mm. And then you can say, yeah, I did that. And you can, and, and the list of competencies was derived from the hiring managers we talked to of the things they want people, they want people to be able to do. Yeah. So, not only can you say, well, I know how to do that. You can actually point to the projects that you worked on where you did it because we had you document that. Mm. So basically, every time you pass a course, you are creating your resume. And you're creating your resume for something that the, uh, the people who are going to look to hire you mm. want you to be able to do. Mm. And and this creates this this virtuous cycle of of making sure that the people we graduate actually can do the things that they that we said they could do. Yeah, it's hugely important, Jared. I'm just being mindful of time, and I realise that we're at time. I have a couple of final questions for you. One of which I'm hoping to ask to help all of those UX recent graduates or students that may be studying UX at the moment and having an eye towards the job market. And obviously we're in an interesting economic predicament currently with COVID-19 ravaging the global economy. Are you up for a scenario-based question? Sure. Great. All right, so this is for all you UX graduates out there. Bit of wisdom I from I, Jared. I hope Spall. I get it right. <laughs> there are no right or wrong answers, Jared. Okay, just answers we'll laugh at once I leave the room. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here's the scenario. You're a recent UX graduate. You've learned some great skills during your studies and you're excited to apply them in the real world. But after applying for over 20 positions, you still haven't landed an interview. Self-doubt is creeping in and you're beginning to question your abilities. What do you need to consider doing differently? Um. Wow. Yeah, this is this is like my life in that I get this question at least once a week from people. It's hard right now. One of the things is that the market's compressed a little uh, because of the pandemic, because of the lockdown, because of the economic strife that came with the lockdown. Uh, organizations until very recently have really held back on hiring. Mm. So they're not they're just not hiring. Um, uh, the job markets have been down across the globe. And so um, that's, that's one problem. And then on, on top of that, the ones that are hiring, um, they, they're behind on projects. So they tend to be looking for more experienced people. 
and they can look for more experienced people because of the economic downturn there's a bunch of experienced people who are looking for new work mm. and are are on the market so they're filling their positions with experienced people so this means that people who are lighter on their experience who just haven't had a chance to prove themselves are not getting the opportunities that they were getting a year and a half ago two years ago when the market was growing and all the experienced people who were any good were well situated in where they were and companies were saying, well, okay, if we can't get experienced people, let's get inexperienced people. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense that companies want uh, experienced people. I mean, if, if you're going to hire a plumber because your, your, your toilet is, is leaking badly, uh, you're going to want one who's fixed that toilet before. You, you, you don't want someone who's like, well, it's my first day on the job. Let <laughs> me see what I can figure out. Uh, so the... Um, uh, you know, you'll only settle for someone less experienced if you you uh, you have all the experienced people you can have, and there just aren't any more people on the market. Mm. And someone who is is less experienced really wants to go someplace where they can continue to learn. They need you know they need to see their first job as a continuation of their education, not as a uh, a distinct different thing it's like well I you know I was done learning on graduation day and and now I don't need to learn anything I'm just <laughs> gonna go do and that's not how how it works mm -hmm. and so so you want to go someplace that that can take you in and can continue your education so it's a partnership and right now uh, organizations are so stressed because they put everything on hold for almost a year that they uh, uh, they don't have room to be training junior people. So the first thing to realize is all those applications and no interviews is not your fault, mm -hmm. right? It has nothing to do with you. It has to do with an economy right now that is uh, in a difficult spot. And it's going to work itself out. It, I don't know how long it's going to take to work itself out, but it's going to work itself out uh, because... If the last year has taught us anything, it's only that design is even more important, not less important. We've seen issue after issue after issue where people got left behind, where things failed us, where things didn't work because we didn't think through the design implications of all the things. Mm -hmm. So so that's only the market's only going to grow. So it's just a matter of time. So there there some amount of this the watchword is is patience. You just have to you have to be patient, but that doesn't help people who graduated with a plan to go get a job and they need the money and they need the work and they want the experience. Uh, uh, it's not going to help them that way. Mm. But what could help them is to realize that the hiring managers who are open to hiring folks with less experience are way more interested in what you in how you learn and how you've learned what you learned than they are in what you can do today. Because the odds are, whatever you're going to do for them, you don't know how to do. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe you know how to, to run a usability test, and maybe you know how to create a wireframe, and maybe you know how to do the visual design of an app. But that's only a part of what you're going to need to do. You're going to need to figure out who are the users, and what do they need, and how does the application work, and what does it, how do you connect things to the back end, and what, you know... 
what things can't you do because of regulation and, and compliance issues. And, mm -hmm. and you're going to need to learn all this stuff that there's no way you learned it in school. Our students didn't learn it in school. You're, you probably didn't either. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you, you're going to need to learn that stuff. So how do you show a hiring manager and a hiring team, all the people you interview with, how do you show them how well you learn things? How do you show them that when you started your program, these were all the things you didn't know. And when you ended the program, these were all the things you knew. Mm -hmm. And what was the path to getting to that? And how does that continue? What's the vector of growth? How do you continue growing? And how does that vector of growth land right in the middle of what someone needs you to do? Mm -hmm. That's what the, a smart hiring manager is looking for. Now, caveat, not all hiring managers are smart. Some of them are actually not smart, and they will ask you things like, uh, what is your design process? <laughs> and, you know, uh, uh, how would you design a, um, uh, an elevator control panel for a building that has 5,000 floors? And um, uh, uh, if you were a tree, what kind of tree would you be? These are all real interview questions. Those are questions that are asked by hiring managers that don't know how to hire. Mm. But a hiring manager who knows how to hire, those people are going to to really dive in and ask you questions like, tell me about the project that you worked on that you're most proud of, and then ask you a thousand questions about that project and really dive into how you tackled it. And what you need to surface is how you learned all the things that you needed to do that project. Mm -hmm. What did you learn during the project? What did you learn in order to do the project that you didn't know when you started school? What were the things that were most challenging about the project that you had to figure out in the process? Those are the, those are the gold questions, right? Those are the questions where when a hiring manager hears that, that you have you ran into this big complicated challenge and you were able to figure it out maybe you took six tries to figure it out but each time you learned something that didn't work until you learned something that did that's what they want to know because they're imagining you running into some challenge in their job and they want to see how you you bullied through that that challenge and how you made it happen mm. that's what they want to know so if you want to give yourself an advantage over other people who are just saying I know how to make personas and create wireframes and do usability tests don't talk about that right that everybody knows that stuff that's that, those are entry stakes mm. that's not what anybody cares about it sounds like what you're saying is that the emphasis should be on the story of the learning and telling that story as opposed to the outputs from your studies, you know, your hero's journey through education and what that's exactly story right. Mm. Exactly right. You came up with this design. How did you learn that was the right design to come up with? Mm. Yeah, that's a really important point, Jared. And my final question, which this is related to, is thinking about the state of the economy, the state of the design industry at the moment, what is your greatest hope for the emerging generation of designers in the coming years? I think my greatest hope, I mean, there are a couple of things. One is, is okay, I have multiple greatest hopes. <laughs> You're um, allowed, that's all right. Uh, 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 
one of my multiple greatest hopes is that we focus on understanding and eliminating all the sources of bad design in the world, right? At this point, we know enough about design to understand that, that no design should be poor. No error message shouldn't make sense. No user interface shouldn't be uh, poorly designed. No task flow should be poor. No compatibility issues with other systems should be poorly designed, right? We, we understand how to do all these things and we understand how to do them well. And there's enough examples of when this is done really well that, that nothing should be poorly designed anymore. Mm -hmm. So we need to figure out why things are being poorly designed and we need to, we need to uh, uh, work with that. So that's the first thing. And then the second piece of it is that uh, uh, we need to start looking at how we eliminate inequity in our systems. Right now, um, there is so much of technology in particular, which is aimed at the privileged and doesn't serve the underprivileged. We felt this in the United States dramatically when schools shut down mm -hmm. and kids from privileged families had no trouble making sure that everybody had a laptop and they could all be on Zoom and they could all go to their Zoom classroom at the same time. But so many people lived in places where they did not have bandwidth to be able to connect. They did not have um, uh, uh, the technology at home. Maybe they had one tablet to be shared across four children. Mm who had to somehow go to school simultaneously mm. with a working single working parent who was also trying to work at the same time, potentially remotely, but in many cases they were an essential worker and they couldn't be at home. Mm. Right? We failed miserably. We were challenged and we failed. We left so many kids behind. And where is the design community talking about that? And so we need to be, be focused on, if we do a great job on this product, who gets harmed? Mm. Those big ethical questions. We can frame them as ethical questions, but they are really questions uh, uh, about doing a high quality job, right? You know, we treat ethics as this thing that we think about when we've got all the other things in place. Mm. But we don't treat quality that way. Quality is something we have to build in. So why is this not part of the quality equation? Why is this something different? Why is this something separate? Yeah. I, I, I think the answer to that is, is that we let our privilege blind us. We did not ask the right questions at the right time. And then suddenly, you know, this this um, uh, virus uh, showed us that we're actually really bad at our jobs because we left millions of people in situations that should not have been in those situations. And and we need to go back. We, you know, take a lot of 
research and understand what the hell just happened mm. and ask ourselves, how do we prevent this from ever happening again? Mm. That's a really somber and important point for everyone listening to think about and reflect on. Jared, thank you. This has been a great conversation full of big ideas and practical insights. Thank you for so generously sharing those with us today. You're welcome. And if somebody knows how you get all the ducks in a row, I will, I will, uh, um, I will be grateful. <laughs> this is what this is what's top of mind for me. Well, if you do find the answer to that, anybody, please leave a comment and uh, and we'll pass that on to Jared and make sure that he knows. And Jared, I also want to say thank you for your long-standing, outstanding, and continued contribution to the field of UX. Oh, thank you. It, it's uh, 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 it's it's been my honor and my pleasure. I'm surprised that anybody ever listens to me. So. <laughs> Well, I'm not. And Jared, if people do want to listen to you, do want to find out more about Center Center and the things that you're up to, what is the best way for them to do that? Well, we have our centercenter.com website. Uh, we are we have an online community that currently has uh, 24,000 people in it called Leaders of Awesomeness. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we have um, uh, all sorts of, you know, I'm ultimately Googleable. Mm -hmm. um, don't believe everything you read. <laughs> the thing with the sheep is not true. <laughs> I mean, it happened, but I, I wasn't. I mean, I was there, but um, I, I didn't participate that much. <laughs> Thanks, Jared. <laughs> to everyone who's tuned in, it's been great having you here too. Everything we've covered in the show today will be in the show notes on YouTube, including where you can find Jared's Center Center, as well as the resources and communities that Jared has just mentioned. If you enjoyed the show and you want to hear more great conversations like this with world-class leaders in UX product and design, don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe. And until next time, keep being brave.